Conversationalist is a podcast about the history of science from the 19th century to today, brought to you by the Constructing Scientific Communities Project. All right, let's get this party started. In the 19th century, many scientific institutions hosted what were known as conversazione, evening gatherings to showcase science and the arts. These events ranged from the outrageously raucous to the excruciatingly boring, but they were united in bringing together experts and amateurs, professional scientists, and the general public for lectures, displays, performances, and of course, conversation. In this podcast, we invite you to join our version of these classic Victorian affairs, our very own cocktail party with experts on the history of science. Conversazione were about information, but they were also very much about entertainment. So we ask our guests in each episode to regale us with a story about the history of science that will captivate us for a drink or two. And at the end of each episode, we'll check in with a couple of other very important contributors to the podcast, our bartenders, for a recipe, a story, or a bit of history about the food and drink that so often accompany a good conversation. Okay, welcome to our conversazione. Before we dive into the conversation in this episode, let's start with introductions. I'm Kira Allman, and I'm the Media and Communications Officer for the Constructing Scientific Communities Project. Uh, and I'm Jeff Belknap. I am a postdoc on ConSciCom as well for the last three years, working at the University of Leicester and the Natural History Museum in London. Well, thanks so much for chatting with me today, Jeff. And it's lunchtime, so we are actually having a very dignified cup of tea today. So cheers. So Jeff, you are in the hot seat today. What will we be talking about? Today, I want to talk about my experience as a historian working with citizen science and how that's actually changed the way that I do history. That sounds brilliant. Okay, so what kind of historical research do you do exactly? Well, I'm, I'm a historian of science, visual culture, and photography. Uh, so I've been trained to look at images. Um, that's, that's my main historical research area, but I've also uh, focused on, on 19th century periodicals. Uh, so really, it's um, my research focuses on the relationship between uh, 19th century print and 19th century image making practices, um, both in the history of science, but also in the histories of 19th century visual culture. So what is citizen science? And when you say you use citizen science in your research, what do you mean by that? Well, for, for actually, when I came to, to constructing scientific communities as a project, um, citizen science was a brand new thing for me. Um, and what, what I've learned through the last three years is it's, it's two things. It's both a historical um, actor network, a group of people that you can think of as doing non-professional participation in science. Uh, but it's also a, a new methodology for doing science and doing history and doing research more generally. Um, there's lots of other words that are applied to it. Crowdsourced science, I think, is, is probably the, the more generalizable term, okay, yeah. um, which means group of people, communities together working on big data sets. Um, that's what citizen science is, at least in my understanding. Right. And so how do you use it? So I have been um, working to develop, uh, in collaboration with uh, a number of other institutions um, and Zooniverse.org, which is one of the partners on ConSciCom, um, a, a platform called ScienceGossip.org. 
Um, and that's uh, a website where we put up um, loads of images from 19th century periodicals and the periodicals as a whole. And then we ask people to help us do research on those. Particularly, we ask them to help us find where the illustrations are in the periodicals because you can't actually use an algorithm um, or you can't use a, an algorithm very easily to find those images. And it's better for the crowd to help us find them. Um, so we ask people to identify where those illustrations are in the periodical, and then we, if they if they do find some, then we ask them to add in lots of information about uh, who the artist or engraver or um, any other category of actor was on those images. What kind of um, what kind of species or uh, things are displayed within that image, um, and then uh, what kind of engraving type it is. Um, so it's it's we get a rich set of metadata from that, um, and also a range of people participating in the actual production of the historical research on these these documents, which is the most fascinating part for me. And what do you need to know this information for in the course of your research? Why do you need to know where in a periodical an image appears, for instance? So the research in general that I'm doing for the project um, has to do with um, finding out the, the ways in which 19th century image making practices or um, images in general were used by scientists, were used by naturalists, and were used to produce 19th century knowledge. And a lot of the production of this knowledge was done within um, the Victorian periodical. So I want to know um, if you're looking at any one particular periodical, say um, the Annals uh, and Magazine of Natural History, how illustrated was it? Um, what kind of images were produced in there? Who was producing these images? How were they producing them? How, um, and what did they look like on the page in relationship to the text? Those are all the kind of deep level historical questions that I need to find out about these periodicals in order to say something about um, how images were valued by, by Victorian scientists as um, experimental visual objects um, for them to prove a scientific theory or, or, or just to do the work of natural history. But to, in order to find that out, it's, um, it's a very laborious practice because there's loads of them. There's loads of periodicals and there's right. also loads of images. Um, so, so finding out where those are is, is, is the first step. Um, and, and that is having citizen science ha scientists help us do that is actually allowing, allowing me and also the, the project more generally to um, identify a much broader scope of Victorian image making and, and periodical production than I would have been able to do on my own as an individual researcher working through these periodicals. Yeah, so it's really extending the scope of what you can accomplish. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's uh, big data applied to historical research and and big uh, the use and the the um, collaboration. And I think collaboration is the is the key word. Collaboration with the crowd in order to to do historical research mm. um, and to find things out that I wouldn't have been able to find out on my own. Mm. And so how do the people who participate in this kind of project acquire the skills they need to be able to identify, you know, things like the author or the creator of an image or, or even what the image depicts? Well, so the development of expertise as a citizen scientist has been one of the, the most interesting um, aspects of the pro of working on science gossip, but also on ConSciCom more generally. Mm. Um, so the, the, to answer that question in a couple of ways, uh, in order to just do the work that we're asking people to do on, on science gossip, you don't actually need to have expertise. We, um, there is um, a help bar, there is um, a, there's a um, talk function where people can get, ask questions to both researchers and other 
community users there to answer their questions if they're mm -hmm. having a hard time with a specific image. Um, but if you come to classify an image and you don't know where, where the artist is or, or what it is um, there is, um, while you're classifying, there's, there's help to do that. So you, can, you don't need to have any knowledge about um, the, who uh, Philip Henry Goss was or who any of these other illustrators might right. have been. Um, you just need to spend the time looking around the page to see if you can find that name or a name. And if you can't, then that's okay as well. Um, so that's that's one side of the work, which uh, doesn't require expertise, but while you're doing that work, and, and as you do more and more of that work, you develop both a knowledge and expertise in that area in and of itself, in the same way that I, as a PhD researcher, went into the archives and read stuff in order to develop sure. expertise. Yeah. I, I saw images, I read periodicals, and that's um, how I started to develop an eye for what was interesting and what, what was important for as these historical documents. And, and what I'm finding um, on, on, the, on using science gossip and using and collaborating with, uh, with Zooniverse and, and citizen science more, scientists more generally is that they're taking the knowledge that they're developing by doing citizen science and expanding the kind of questions that they find interesting mm -hmm. uh, that I might also find interesting as a researcher I might not find interesting, mm -hmm. but that um, allows them to develop uh, their own research questions. So for instance, um, oh, wow. some of the users have decided that um, they have been coming across a number of female illustrators or female participants hmm. um, within the images and the text that they've been reading. And that's actually not a question that um, I or we as a, as a community have framed to, to the users to, to ask or to answer. Ah. But they're just, they have created um, on this community function, which is called Talk, um, a space where they can start creating a list of these female contributors, where they can start increasing um, the metadata um, uh, analysis of who okay. these are, where they are in the text, but also um, then hopefully putting that back into sources like Wikipedia articles. It's been, it's been fascinating to see um, a community developing its own desires, research interests and expertise within the, the confines of the project itself, but then um, breaking those boundaries and going in new yeah. research directions. So, so expertise is really a complicated question for that because it's, Absolutely, yeah. it's both something you don't have to have any expertise at all in in order to do, participate um, yeah. in citizen science. Um, but as you're doing it, and if you do it often enough, you can become a researcher, which I think is is brilliant. Um, That's amazing. Yeah, really. it's it's for me, it's breaking the boundaries of what research should and can be. Yeah, this is very exciting. Yeah. I think hearing you talk about this is just it's very inspiring. It sounds thrilling to me. Um, do you what do you know much about the kinds of people who participate in the citizen science that you engage in? So in the sciencegossip.org project, um, are these people? researchers themselves? I, I, that, that's also one of the really interesting parts of it is, uh, um, for me, they're anonymous because everyone ah. comes to the, the page in, semi, in a semi-anonymous or as, as anonymous as they want to be. So you can enter your full name on there, or you can have um, just a nickname as your, as your ID, or you don't need to put any identification in, the, in order to participate in the website at all. And as a researcher, I don't ask. I want them to be able to to participate freely without feeling like they have to be one thing or the other. Yeah. Um, I have, uh, through my participation in this community, um, created more links with some of the super users. And I, I know um, that many of them don't necessarily come with a research background or come with a research background in other sciences or other disciplines that yeah. are completely unrelated to history, humanities, 19th century, Victorian science. 
Um, but from, from a, a, as much as I know, it's quite a broad base of participants, people hmm. of all ages, um, based on the information that I've had from Zooniverse, it's quite a, a, quite a uh, broad, uh, both geographic and age, age group of people participating in it. Um, you mentioned that sometimes you have to sort of moderate these user groups. There's sort of the talk function mm. on science gossip. Do you find that this ends up taking up quite a lot of your time as a researcher? Because I'm imagining this being sort of analogous to our social media dominated lives. You know, you feel like you constantly have to answer the message boards and you have to be constantly available. Do, do you, did you find that as a researcher? Well, it does. I mean, there's, there's no way around that, that it is, um, it is, it is something you have to spend time doing. Um, and especially when you're first launching a project, it's absolutely, my experience has been, it's absolutely necessary for the, the group of researchers and the people founding the projects to be there and to be continuously part of the community mm -hmm. as it's being formed. And, and if you want that community to continue to, to, um, to upkeep it. But for me, that, that time spent um, in different ways to social media is, is the same as doing research because mm -hmm. uh, this is research, you know, it is, um, participating and creating um, core research for me uh, that will be useful for the book that I want to write about Victorian illustrations in 19th century periodicals. But it's also giving me a, a key understanding and a new understanding of how to engage with a much broader group of people than I'm used to. And, and I think that's that's not just important, but it's essential um, mm. for historians to be able to to start broadening not just the scope of who we communicate and and passively give our our knowledge to, yeah. but actually bringing in a whole range and much broader range of participants into the very practices of research that we, as so-called experts, um, are are creating and participating in. Mm -hmm. That um, to do citizen science is actually to fundamentally change how you, at least for me, conceive the practices of history. Now the project is called Science Gossip. Um, why is it called that? That is the name of a 19th century periodical, right? So why, why did you choose that name? But there are other periodicals that are included in the project as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. So uh, Science Gossip was just the perfect name for a website because it was also <laughs> one of the, the core periodicals that I was looking at as a historical document. Sure. So there, there was a um, I, since I look at natural history periodicals, there is a really large group of, uh, of titles that one could choose from. And uh, when I started looking and making a list of, of these different titles of uh, various natural history uh, genre of periodicals, um, one jumped out at me, which was called Hardwick's Science Gossip, which, uh -huh. which started in about 1865 and, and it ran until the early uh, 20th century. And it was great because it was supposed to be this large genre catch-all periodical for everyone interested in any form of natural history. <laughs> That's botany, geology, zoology, fossil collecting, um, antiquarian objects, oh monsters my. from the past, any, anything that, that fell under this very large umbrella um, was ca captured in this periodical. And Part of the reason I found it so, so, so great as a historical document is because it was full of illustrations, has these lovely woodcuts mostly, some lithographs, um, was chock-a-block with the, the core sources that I wanted to look at, but it also was filled with a whole range of people that I had never come across before. Mm. And I had, hadn't come across them because I didn't think to look there. And um, what, I, what I found by, by looking through this periodical is that it was, it was linked to lots of other important scientific periodicals of the period. 
had really interesting um, characters that were producing important, say, mycological, which is fungus-based work, or entomological oh. work um, for Victorian natural history. But because we have tended to look at the dominant names in, in, in periodical history, say Nature as a, as a journal and its origins, yeah. um, by looking at, at these periodicals, Science Gossip as an example, you actually find a whole range of participants which fall under the category of citizen scientists. People that are lay participants in science, um, participate, uh, might be uh, medical doctors or might be uh, working um, uh, factory men that, that also mm. like to collect and look at, look at um, bugs. And, and want to participate in the, uh, the science of natural history. And they could actually do this in science gossip. They oh. could write in, draw something, write an article, and have it published there, um, and have it commented on. And, and that, to me, was, was a really interesting point about, well, what are the sources we're looking at, and how does it contain different types of communities? And how does that form our frame of how we think of, of both the people and the products of history? Are there any parallels to this today? Do we have any similar publications? Well, so what's happened throughout the 20th century um, and into the 21st century is you have, you've had a large specialization in the scientific, the dominant scientific periodical literature. But I think what is changing certainly with open source publishing is you are getting a, a much broader range of, um, of participation in science through through publishing. I don't think sure. we're going back. I don't think we have uh, the same kind of culture as we did in the 19th century where you had just loads of different titles where lots of different people could participate in it. But hopefully with um, new open source online publishing platforms, um, we can get something like that again. Um, I know there's a lot of um, citizen science-based periodicals as well that are, are working on a similar kind of uh, methodology and, yeah. and outlook. Um, but I, it's, it's, it's a hopeful question rather than a, than a necessarily concrete one. Yeah, it's interesting because since I've been working on this project, I've heard from many people that there are so many parallels between the 19th century and the internet age, mm. that a lot of the opportunities that seemed available, particularly in the scientific space in the Victorian era, seem to be mirrored now with the opportunities made available by the internet. Yeah, it's, I mean, what's, what's really um, fascinating for me is that studying the 19th century periodical has become um, a, a, lot, a lot more relevant because mm -hmm. I can connect it to this massive shift that's occurred through the production of the internet as a communication space mm. and understanding the 19th century um, explosion of periodicals that I have studied as, a, as maybe not exactly the same, but as following at least conceptual patterns hmm. um, and conceptual spaces um, upon which people can enter into debates with each other and as spaces for creating communities for discussion and sending things to each other and talking about um, new discoveries or controversial issues or just daily quotidian facts that both of those, the periodical, the newspaper, the, the publishing press and the internet have, have nice overlaps um, between their open sourceness. Um, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, definitely. Using citizen science during your historical research, um, how has it directly contributed to your own findings? I have been on this project for three years, and um, in that time, I could have gone through maybe four or five periodicals uh, from start to finish, um, looking at really? e the, the print run, say a 10-year print run, and looking at all of the illustrations. So far, we've run Science Gossip for two years, mm -hmm. and we have over 17 periodicals completely digitized, wow. uh, completely classified. Um, 
with all of the the image uh, the images and metadata attributed to those and it doesn't look like it's going to stop anytime soon so we can keep continuing to add more periodicals as time goes on so it's created uh, a much larger bulk of information upon which i can um start to say things about 19th century science visual culture but it's i think more than anything it's it's taught me a lot of um different things I didn't expect about the practices of doing history and what the limitations of a historian are. Mm -hmm. So one of the things, one of the, the clearest and starkest things is that I don't have very good skills in, um, in analytics. So I'm not a, I, I don't, I have never been trained in statistical modeling or data crunching. And that's actually a limitation to doing citizen science work because you have a large data set that you need to then work right. through. Um, and I think what would be interesting in the future is figuring out, well, how do humanities scholars who are not trained in doing that kind of research use citizen science and then be able to use it most effectively? So whether that's data visualization and creating nice charts and maps through the data yeah. that you have um, or working in collaboration with computer scientists that do have those skills and not necessarily having to develop a whole range of skills mm -hmm. that would take time and years to develop. Um, but rather creating new collaborations that allow you to most effectively make use of a data set that you're not used to. Do you feel like you lose anything by taking these periodicals and turning them into metadata? So when we when we turn historical content like this into a large data set, it's very appealing, as you say, to perform statistical analysis on it, um, to basically manipulate the data in the language of data. Absolutely. So I think the the worry is that we become historians that only, or become researchers, humanities scholars that only do research exactly. via metadata analysis. Um, my experience so far is that you always have to, in digital humanities writ large, um, whether that's digitizing corpuses of information and then only dealing with stuff that's online mm -hmm. or using citizen science in collaboration with that, is we always will need to go back to the texts in the first place. Mm. What's What's been most useful is thinking about the different ways that a um, periodical in front of me as I turn the page can tell me particular information about the document that I'm reading or the people that exist within that periodical or the images that appear on the page versus the kind of research I can do online as a collaborative or as a, as a large data set object. Um, and that both of those forms of research need to be brought together rather than being done in isolation. Right. That um, we can't do digital research without the, the objects as well. Mm -hmm. And we shouldn't do object research without the digital side as well. So I think we, because we have access now to these digital resources, we should be bringing those two things together rather than thinking of them as different methodological functions. Yeah. Oh, I can definitely get behind that. What are some of the most unusual or what are the quirkiest things that you've come across in looking at these images from the periodicals you use in the Science Gossip Project? Well, I mean, so there's there's just loads of weird stuff, weird <laughs> images out there, which are brilliant because they're, they they encapsulate um, people's attention and interest. Sure. Um, there has been, uh, I mean, some of the things that aren't images are also really fascinating. So in one of the periodicals that I was looking at um, is, a, is a local um, antiquarian society from Wiltshire. Mm -hmm. And um, what was what was brilliant about that periodical is is every every couple of months, they would have a list of Wiltshire slang. 
um, for, for 19th century <laughs> names of things. And, yeah. and the, the talk community on science gossip loved this because it's, it's all old, weird words for things. And it's, it's great because it actually has nothing to do Bring with the research back. that we, yeah, it has nothing to do with the research that I want to get out of it, but it is fascinating and, and topical and, yeah. st and, and great, um, historical archives for other research interests. Yeah. Um, but it, it, so there's been loads of things like that. And there's also weird and wonderful images, um, sure. that, that people come up with and that have been put onto the Zooniverse website more generally and, and, yeah. and create content in that way. So, yeah. If people are listening to this and they want to see uh, this project in action, can they do that? Yeah, absolutely. So you can go to www.sciencegossip.org um, and you can classify. There's still loads of images to classify there. You can come onto the talk. So you just go to talk.sciencegossip.org and you can see loads of images that people have brought to the discussion. Um, you can see yeah. people's collections of images that they found interesting. Uh, you can see what we're saying about the, this stuff and this research. Yeah, that sounds really cool. I've been on there and the images are, some of them are, are really quite funny, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, the, the Victorianists were kooky. It's almost like they anticipated the digital age. Yeah, you know, they knew uh, what could go viral. And... Uh, I'm, st I'm still waiting for uh, that, that, that perfect picture of cats that, will, uh, that, <laughs> that, I, can, that I can tweet and it will, it will make me a viral name. It hasn't happened yet. But a I'm, Victorian lolcat. Uh, yeah, a Victorian lolcat. Yeah, I'm waiting for it to yeah. create it into a GIF. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on to talk about science gossip and citizen science and historical research. Uh, it's been really interesting. No, my pleasure. Okay, well, even though we're drinking tea today, and I'll go ahead and clear up the mugs here, I think we should throw it over to our bartenders who can tell us about some stronger brews. If you listen to the first episode, you'll remember Corey and Tom, who join us from the Oxford Artisan Distillery. Hello, he is Corey. I'm the distiller behind the Oxford Artisan Distillery, also known as Toad here in Oxford. And this is... Tom Nicholson, I'm the founder of the Oxford Artisan Distillery, and we are based in the heart of Oxford, making beautiful, wonderful spirits from the field to the bottle. So last time I asked you about how gin was made. This time, you know this is meant to be a cocktail party of sorts, and I'm wondering what are the historical origins of the cocktail? There's an evolution course, yeah. that actually ends up tying back most of these to medicine. Yeah. You know, these things start as botanicals, and what's a botanical? A botanical is a, is, is a plant that gives flavoring, yeah. you know, has properties. So a lot of these flavors and properties were originally attributed, um, they attributed medicinal properties to them. You know, bitter things that we have in our bitters, which and bitters are the basis of so many cocktails now. We talked about an absinthe cocktail. You said yeah. things, something like a Sazerac, right? Yeah. Where you have rye whiskey from the States. It's one of the original cocktails. You've got absinthe in there. You originally have brandy. So it's a, it's a, it's a rye cocktail now, the original version had brandy. Um, you've got absinthe, you've got some bitters, uh, and you've got some sugar. Now, the earliest definitions of a cocktail are booze, sugar, water, and bitters, you know? And that's indistinguishable from but that's absent, medicine at that's the time. But that's absinthe rye, sugar, and bitters. It is now. Yeah. Originally, Sazerac was made with brandy, sugar, bitters, ah, right. and a, a wash of absinthe. Yeah, really. You know? So really, absinthe, absinthe of the botanicals that are in absinthe, they get traced back to medicinal properties. Wormwood, you know, it's called yeah. wormwood because they use it to cure worms. You know, these are medicinal things. You've got hyssop in there. You've got anises that have always been used in um, for flavoring things. Juniper is, in gin starts as a, a medicinal spirit. Absolutely. So all these medicinal things, elixirs. Yeah. I mean, some of my favorite favorite things that are still being produced today are the monastic um, liqueurs. You have chartreuse. You have Benedictine. You yeah. know. 
And these evolved, like chartreuse, it's the elixir of long life given to the monks hundreds of years ago and has hundreds of botanicals in it. And it's still made the same way today yeah. by the same monks, you know, the same chartreusian order. So cocktails are just what the doctor ordered then? Well, there's a, there's a reason you used to drink to your health. Yeah. You know, drink to your health was because it had medicinal properties. It's the water of life. Uh, all alcohol, when you trace it back, you can usually trace it back to the term water of life. The original name for whiskeys, you know, aquavits. Mm. These are alcohol being healthy things for you. Even before distillation, alcohol was used medicinally in the form of wines and uh, cherries and things where you put medicinals into your wine and soak them. And it would dissolve. Alcohol is a solvent. Alcohol as a solvent dissolves botanicals and dissolves the properties in them and allows your body to ingest them better. We've elevated that. Now, I don't think most people don't see um, liqueurs or alcohols as really good for you, you know, no matter how many botanicals <laughs> you've But early days, them. I mean, they're called spirits, yeah. aren't they? Absolutely. You know, it's kind of, so, yeah. see, a... so remedies, too, are still tinctures and all that. That's alcohol. Um, distillation is another interesting one because... With a tincture, you're putting everything into it. And it's, bitters are tinctures. You know, bitters that we use in cocktails today, those are medicinal tinctures for the most part, flavoring tinctures. You know, you dissolve your tannins, your alkaloids, and those have uh, beneficial health properties. But when you distill something, you then further separate it. So you leave a lot of the bitter flavors behind, but you can then choose the volatile compounds that are coming out into it. Um, some of those can have you know, a higher concentration of healthy things, I guess. But really, at this point, we're using it for flavoring. Well, let's go ahead and wrap it up there. We've covered how citizen science can contribute to historical research and how alcohol can be good for you. That's definitely a solid podcast episode. Thanks again for joining us, Corey and Tom, and we'll look forward to hearing from you again soon. The Conversationalist is a podcast from the Constructing Scientific Communities Project, funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. It is based at the Universities of Oxford and Leicester in partnership with the Natural History Museum, the Hunterian Museum at the Royal College of Surgeons, and the Royal Society. For our most recent podcasts, subscribe on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. 